Okay, does every, did everybody get the short guide on confession? Because if you didn't, don't get out. We'll get one of the team members to bring them. Hold up your hand if you did not get it. Okay. Um, you said could maybe bring in a couple of those. That'd be great. So I want you, I want you all to have that. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then if there's any medically kind of minded folks in here, there's a really good um, program that's going to be happening in March, March 28th. Um, through the St. John Paul II Foundation. It's Catholic Social Doctrine in Medicine. It's really focused on um, Catholic practitioners, physicians, nurses. Um, it's just great. It's, it's got like the best of Catholic physicians and nurses that speak on just the challenges of practicing medicine in a crazy world that really doesn't look at the human person the way Catholic books of human person. And so it, it actually happens at Our Lady of Walsingham, which is a beautiful cathedral that's on Westview and Bingle. And Bishop Lopes, who is um, the Bishop of the Ordinariate, that's the, that is that phenomenon that Pope Benedict brought into um, being, gosh, maybe 10 years ago now, in which the Anglican Anglican priests were able to come into communion, full communion with the Catholic Church, and all of them were married priests, and they were brought into the Catholic um, faith. They were able to remain married, and they practice um, the Catholic faith. They had to be ordained, actually, as Catholic priests, um, but they're able to accept the teachings of the Catholic Church, but also to worship in their Anglican rite which is a much more formal rite than the Catholic Church. So it's beautiful. You can receive communion there once you're Catholic. You can worship there. Um, it's just a different form of worship in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. The priesthood that is a married priesthood in their ordinariate is only for this generation. And so the next generation of priests um, that are now being ordained into the ordinariate as Catholic Anglicans, I don't know how else to say it, um, will not be mar a married priesthood. So it was kind of an exception that Holy Father made in order to allow for priests who recognize the truth of the Catholic faith to continue on in their ministry of the priesthood. There's a lot of controversy about that right now, kind of the holy orders and celibacy and, and that kind of thing. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have about that because it's really in the news right now. And so Pope Benedict, who is um, Emeritus Pope Benedict, who's still alive, but resigned from the papacy, just wrote a letter that basically kind of is defending the celibate priesthood and saying that, you know, this really is so important to the spirituality of the priesthood, to his priesthood. And yet, we have to remember that a celibate priesthood is, is a discipline of the church. It's not a doctrine of the faith. And so it is something that could change if the church determined that it made sense um, for the time. And so it's something to just keep in mind. I, I, I agree with Pope Benedict that tipped right now is not the time, but I'm not the Pope, so I don't get to make decisions like that. Um, Pope Francis is supposed to come up with um, a new letter that's going to address some of the issues in some of our really third world countries that have a very uh, difficult shortage of the priesthood, and yet they have elders in the community who are deacons, 
who might be ordained to the priesthood and then serve that community in terms of providing Eucharist and sacraments that deacons can't administer. So that's kind of how this whole conversation came about. You know, how can we serve the people in the Amazon um, and the difficulties that exist there as it relates to the priesthood, the sacraments that they need, worship, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of one of those things that's out there, and I think there's a lot of rumors that say that, like, well, Pope Benedict doesn't like Pope Francis, and that's what's really going on here, and he's telling Pope Francis that he's wrong, and I don't think so. I think it's that Pope Benedict just really wanted to share his love for the celibate priesthood and how important he thinks it is to our times. And so, um, so anyway, if you have a chance, read those documents. They're wonderful. And um, it'll be interesting to see what Pope Francis comes up with as well. But tonight, we are going to finish up our discussion on the sacraments. Um, and we're, so we're going to talk tonight about the sacraments of healing. And um, these are two of the most beautiful sacraments, and they are the sacraments of healing. You know, I think that when we talk about confession, when we talk about reconciliation, and we talk about the anointing of the sick, um, sometimes they seem like difficult sacraments in the sense that the anointing of the sick is about death, which, is, which can be difficult, and that confession is about having to tell somebody your sins. I mean, you know, this doesn't sound good, right? And yet, both of these things are realities of our life, and they're realities which require healing. And this is what these sacraments bring. They continue the healing work of the great physician, Jesus Christ who has come to heal us from our sins, our division, our fragmentation. And so these are, these are some of the most beautiful sacraments of the church, and so I hope you can, you can see that as I, I discuss them um, tonight. But before we begin, why don't we ask the Lord to, um, to be with us um, and to bless us as we, we talk about this final segment of the seven sacraments of the church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, good and gracious God, we just praise you and recognize and declare our love for you um, tonight. We, we praise you and thank you for the rain, which we so desperately need. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to be together as a community of faith, seeking your face. Um, we ask that you be with us, that you open our hearts and our minds to receive all that you intend, to transform our hearts, to soften our hearts um, in a way that makes us capable of becoming the image and likeness of you that we were created to be. Help us to love one another better. Um, help us to live the life that you have called us to live. Utilize me, Lord, and my team as an instrument of your grace so that we can communicate most effectively your saving power. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So. I really liked last time that we were together that John kind of quizzed you a little bit about sacraments. I don't do that enough. Um, and this is really important because I want you to know what it means when we talk about sacrament. So can one of you guys that's not currently a Catholic tell me what is a sacrament? Like how would you explain to one of your friends or your family members that maybe isn't Catholic, what's a sacrament? How do you, what do you remember about what John said last time or what I said when I first started talking about sacraments? What are some realities of sacraments? Yes? An outward action of an inward feeling. Okay, great. So it's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's almost, it's easier for me to say this. 
a visible sign of an invisible reality. So like, what's the visible sign of baptism? Water, right? And what's the invisible reality? The cleansing of our sin, right? So, so it, it looks like what the sign kind of points us towards. It looks like that's what it does. And that's because it does. And so it actually participates in the reality that it signifies. Yeah. What would be the outward sign of marriage and then like the inward reality? What Can somebody that's been prepared by me answer that question? What's the visible sign of the sacrament of marriage? Right. No. It's not the ring. It's a good guess. The ring is always a good guess. Because it's made of precious material and it kind of goes on and on and on, right? Very good. The visible sign is the couple. Why? What's the invisible reality? No, how Christ loved the church. So, so when you look at a married couple, you should say, oh, that's how Christ loved the church. How you love one another. So the couple is a visible sign of an invisible reality, Christ's love for the church. And that's why a married couple is called to die for one another, right? That's what they're called to lay down their life because they're visible signs of what Christ already did for the church. And so, so important. I think I have my clicker here somewhere. So important for us to just kind of really internalize this understanding of sacrament. Visible sign of an invisible reality that does what it looks like it does. And it does it not by magic, but by God's grace. His grace is transforming. Why? Because it's his life. And so all of the sacraments communicate to us his life. He promised he would always be with us. And in the sacraments, he always is. What a beautiful gift to the church. And so the sacraments are that. They're his life. And they follow us, remember, as I said, throughout the whole of our lives. Baptism, we should be, in baptism, it's when we're infants. Eucharist is when we're seven. Confession, right before Eucharist, when we're seven. Seven-year-olds do commit sin, right, Helen? <laughs> they are capable. They know right from wrong, right? Helen used to prepare our second graders over at, um, over at the school. Confirmation. We're a little bit older, right? We become witnesses of, of this faith that now we claim as our own. Then marriage and holy orders in our young adult life. And then the anointing of the sick um, as we age. And so the sacraments follow us throughout the whole of our life. It's, it's really a beautiful, beautiful story. But I think the most beautiful story is really what the sacraments of healing really reflect or one of the most beautiful gospel stories that we have. And that's the story of the prodigal son. It, it really, it signifies everything, really, that the New Testament calls us to, right? God's mercy, his forgiveness. But also reflects his authority, his power, his justice. It's a beautiful picture that Rembrandt painted he was a Catholic, tortured Catholic. And he painted this over and over again. There's, there's many different depictions of the prodigal son that he has um, painted. Henry Nouwen wrote 
his best book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, if you ever have a chance to read it, it's a small, short book, but he kind of, he unpacks kind of the story of Rembrandt and this beautiful portrait that Rembrandt painted. You'll see in the, in the portrait that the father is blind. And that really signifies the deep knowing of God. Because he doesn't need the external attributes of sight to know who we are or what we've done. He, know, he knows our heart, right? He has this interior scene. If you look at the hands on the picture in the portrait, one is a very thin hand. It's actually very feminine. It really reflects God's mercy, which tends to have you know, a, a feminine uh, component to it. And then the, the more sturdy, muscular hand reflects God's justice and that masculine um, side or dimension of, of who God is. And then you see the son, the younger son, and I, I want to go through the story, but you have to see the younger son kneeling down in front of his father, and he's bald-headed as, as, as a prisoner would be. He's been imprisoned and enslaved by his sin. And yet his head is bald, which can also reflect that he is a new creation in Christ as he kneels before the Father. He's lost everything, and this is reflected in the loss of his shoes, right? The, the last thing, you know, that really identifies shoes as, as being poor in everything is to not have shoes and his sandals, his left sandal is, is off of his foot. Um, and that's how destitute he has become. And yet one thing remains, and it's not as evident in this, in this portrait, um, but it's there, and that is his sword. The one sign of nobility that is left to the younger son. And this, this sword, Rembrandt reflects upon and now it reflects upon, is something that Christians receive that we can never lose. And that would be baptism. That regardless of whether we turn away from God or we reject his teachings, his church, whatever that is, we can never, be, we can never lose the mark that he's given to us in baptism. And that is the sword. Because you know, the story of the prodigal son, I mean, this kid would have sold a sword, right? I mean, he had, he had games to play and people to please, right? He would have sold the sword. The younger son approaches his father in the story. He's the younger son, and he says to his father, give me my inheritance that's coming to me. It's about me. That's what it's about. But the problem was is he's the younger son, and he actually isn't owed anything. He's the younger son. The inheritance goes to the older son. And yet he's demanding something that he is totally undeserving of. Should sound familiar. And yet, his father, who knows that he's undeserving, and he's the second son, who is rich in mercy, gives the son what he wants. And, and it's amazing, because the son is also actually saying, you know, I kind of wish that you were dead, because when you die, I should get something. And so it's a total insult to the father, and yet the father gives him his share, which really isn't his share. And a couple days later, the young son goes off to foreign lands. And this really, this really stands for the idea that the son goes off and lives in a way that he was not brought up to live in. He, he started to live out values that were not his growing up. So he's living 
in a way that's foreign to his upbringing. And of course, he loses his inheritance. And loose women, lots of parties, and he ends up tending the pigs, which of course is the worst thing that a Jew would have to do. He's tending the pigs. He has no friends left. And while he's tending the pigs, he's not even offered the husks that are in the pen that he's tending the pigs for. And he begins to think, man, even my father's servants have a nice place to live and enough to eat. And he begins to think about this. So this is kind of the beginning of his conversion, his turning away from the world and towards the father. And this is kind of what I like to call, and we'll talk about this a little bit, it's a contrition, but it's an imperfect contrition. So it's not, it's not being sorry for what has happened because of his love for the Father. But it's because I've lost a lot and I'm hurting. But that's okay. God, God will take it, right? He begins to think, you know, I think if I just, if I just ask my Father for forgiveness, if I say, like, don't make me a son again, just make me one of your slaves, and, you know, please just take it back. And this begins to seem, okay, I, I can do this. He makes his way home. And, and when he's still far away off, his father spots him. Because that's what the father does. He's, he's been looking for the son since he left home. And so when he's still far away off, the father spots him. And he runs to the son. And before the son can even confess his sins, the father restores him to sonship because that's what God does. When you begin to think, I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry for what I've done. And you begin to recognize the gravity of what you've done. And you begin to make your way to the confessional. Your sin's already been forgiven, but he still wants you to give voice to it. And we'll talk about why that is. And so when the son kneels before the father, the father restores him to complete sonship. Puts his robes on his back, a ring on his finger, and calls for the killing of the fatted calf so that we can now celebrate. Because my son who is dead has now been found. He is alive. Let's have a party. There's a couple other characters in that uh, portrait up there. And of course, there's an older son. This is a man who had two sons. The older son has always been in the house, right? And this always reminds me of, of us Catholics that have always been in the house of God. Like we grew up having access to all the sacraments of the church. And yes, some of us, myself included, never really partook of the fullness of grace that the Lord has always wanted us to have. And I think like the older son, you know, he, he was in, living in the house, but he didn't know what he had. He was mad as hell when he heard that his younger son was back, younger brother was back, who had wasted half of his inheritance. And that was father's throwing a party for him, right? He says, Dad, you've never even given us me a kid goat to party with my friends with. And now his son was everything. You're throwing a party for him. And of course his, his father says something that's so compelling. He says, son, you have always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. Come 
you know, come and celebrate the return of your brother. And so in this, in this story, I think it's really important for us to recognize that you can be lost even if you've never left home, right? And, and that was really the story of the older son. You know, he was always in the house, but he was lost. <laughs> he did not know who he was. And he, he was not experienced the abundance that was present in the father's house. I think the other thing that can often happen to us is we kind of contrast the two sons. You know, the one son, is he's, he went out, out on a moral rampage, which most of us did at some point in our life. Maybe some of us didn't. But most of us, after high school, we go to college, we've got freedom. You know, we're living on our own. We can do what we want. We can stay out as late as we want. We can make choices that maybe we regret. I mean, all these kinds of things. You know, we, we kind of just go wild. And then, you know, we've got the other side. The person that always followed the rules but's a little resentful that maybe they didn't have as much fun as the other one. Um, and so there's, there's two sides to this. But I think that the mistake would be to, to kind of identify you as being the younger son or the older son. Because we're not called to be either. We're really called to be the father. We're called to be the one that knows who he is. That experiences, you know, the abundance of joy and goodness and mercy and justice and welcomes um, the other into the house. And so, so the story of the prodigal son really is, is, is our story. Because all of us at some point in our lives leave home. Um, and, and we need to come back. And part of that involves God's grace, and part of that involves our freedom. And they both really play an important part um, in our lives and in the sacraments. There's different names for um, the sacrament of reconciliation, and I think they kind of give us some insight into the meaning of reconciliation, one of those um, names is penance. Because penance is part of the sacrament of reconciliation. We're called to kind of respond to the forgiveness that is given to us in the sacrament of reconciliation. I'm gonna go through that, that sacrament, but you know, I, I always like to think about you know, what sin does in our life. You know, I think a lot of times, we think, man, you know, I know that we're all sinners, but Jesus has died for our sins and, and we're forgiven. And that's true. But our sin also causes damage. Our lives are broken and the particles are all over the floor and sometimes in another person's space. <laughs> no sin is personal. It impacts not just us, but it impacts our relationships. It impacts the people we work with, it impacts the church. Because when we sin, we actually can't be what we're called to be. We can't love the way we're called to love because we're selfish and we're stupid. So what sin does, makes us both of those things. And so, if we break somebody's window, it's not enough that they, we say, I'm sorry, and they say, okay, we gotta replace the window and we gotta, Mop up the floor, right? We gotta, we gotta do something to show that our sorry actually has meaning. And so penance is a great, a great word for this sacrament. The other is confession, because it's what we do. 
we actually have to make an, what we call an auricular confession. We have to give voice to our sin. And I've got a great little video I want to show you um, a little bit later about, you know, why is it so important for us to confess our sins? You know, I, I think that all of us would feel a lot more comfortable just going to our room and talking to God about what we've done, right? But there's something about confessing our sins that makes us aware of them and provides a grace to transform us and to give us the virtue of humility um, that is what makes a great saint. Conversion of tears. The sacrament of confession is often called a conversion of tears. The first and fundamental conversion is what we call, well, Augustine called the conversion of water, which is baptism. So the first conversion, the first fundamental conversion is when we are baptized, because this actually restores what we lost in original sin, right? Because original sin is a loss of original grace, and so we actually inherit this deficit, and baptism restores it. And so that's the first and fundamental conversion. It makes us now capable of responding in love to the Christian life and the Christian walk. Now we need education, we need teaching, we need consequences for our behavior from our parents, we need an education and freedom, we need all those things and the sacraments as we go along. Um, but baptism is that first step. Confession is a conversion of tears because it's when we fall after we have been washed clean. Because, you know, this is so important, and I think John talked a little bit about it last time, you know, baptism, baptism removes the tumor that's causing our body to be sick. But what remains is a big old hole. And, and, and maybe we're, we're, we're sewn up, you know, and, and we're given antibiotics, but we need to heal. And so that's what our life really is like after baptism. You know, we've, we're still limping a little bit. Um, we still need to be healed. We need, still need to grow in virtue. We need to use our freedom well so that we can become what we were made to be. It's a sacrament of forgiveness, as I've already indicated. Um, and it's a sacrament, sacrament of reconciliation. So it reconciles us back to the Father, and it also reconciles us back to the church. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in when we talk about the moral life, but, but I think it might be helpful for us to talk a little bit about it here. Um, the church mandates that if we are in very serious sin, which is also called mortal sin, what does mortal mean? What does it kind of imply when you think about mortal? Death, right? So this puts us at rest, at risk for death. It's, it's mortal because what God wants for us is abundant life. And mortal sin puts that in jeopardy. Mortal sin is deadly sin. We see this in John's Gospel where he talks about the difference between deadly sins and less deadly sins. And deadly sins are, are those which, which separate us from God. They are mortal sins. They are grave sins. You'll hear all those terms in the catechism. We don't have a list of mortal sins. St. Paul gives us the closest list that we can get to. Adultery, murder, idolatry. Um, there's, there's some more sins in, in the letter of, to the Corinthians. 
um, that talks about uh, men laying with men or women laying with women. So um, same-sex activity is, is problematic. Adultery again, um, sex outside of marriage is problematic. Worshiping other gods is problematic. Um, so serious sins that really break the Ten Commandments. But we don't have really a list because we do have to know that the sin is a sin. I mean, some of us grow up never knowing that it's a really serious sin. I mean, a mortal sin in the Catholic Church is to miss Mass on Sunday. It's a mortal sin. That separates us from God. Because justice due to God is worship. And he commanded us to make holy the Sabbath. And so that's, that's part of the Ten Commandments. And so, but if you don't know that, and you just think, well, I'm just going to pray at home, or I'm just going to do something good on a Sunday. I think it's fine to go to church, but, you know, I don't have to go to church. You know, but once somebody discovers that, um, they're not responsible for what they didn't know. And so, but once we know that, then we have to respond in kind. We can still reject it, of course. But that's what confession does. So when you go to confession, you have, when you confess your sins, the priest wants to kind of know what's going on with that. Like, how did that happen? You know, what's your life circumstance? Did you miss mass because you were taking care of your mother? Well, that's actually okay. Like, you had a really good reason to be at home, not at mass. Um, and so, so your intention matters when it comes to sin. But it is important to know that just because you didn't know that missing mass was a mortal sin. It doesn't make it not a mortal sin. It just makes you ignorant of that. And now that you're no longer ignorant of that, now you're responsible for that. And so, so that's why we don't have a list. Because the priest has to know where, where were you when you committed that sin in terms of your knowledge, your understanding, your intention. Um, and then, then he can make a judgment um, as to where that sin stands. Um, on that on that list. So mortal sin is, is a very serious sin. Usually involves kind of the, the material of the Ten Commandments. And um, and again, it uh, involves your intentionality, your freedom, and your knowledge. A venial sin is a less serious sin. And it, it wounds charity. So it's not, it's not moving us forward in our relationship with God. Um, but it is less serious. Unfortunately, venial sins committed again and again can lead us to mortal sin, right? Because it kind of, it kind of distorts our vision and we become numb to sin. And so, you know, maybe we gossip a little bit, but at one point we get to the point where we actually really hurt somebody's reputation where we kill their reputation. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it say that you shall not kill, but I say whoever's angry with his brother has work to do. Um, and so, so these, these less serious sins can really make us numb to sin, and they can lead to mortal sin. And so if you have committed a mortal sin, the church says you must go to confession right away and confess that sin, or you should not receive communion until you do, because you are not you have lost you have lost the grace of the Lord, and you are not in a state of grace anymore. And you're receiving the Lord, who is grace Himself, and so you are unworthily receiving 
the body and blood of our Lord. And so we are called to be in a state of grace when we receive the Eucharist. Now, venial sins are sins that can be easily forgiven by going to God in prayer and asking for forgiveness by good works. Um, venial sins are actually taken away in the penitential rite at Mass. That's why it's important to get to Mass on time. And, um, you know, after the priest says, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen, the Lord be with you, with your spirit, he says, let us call to mind our sins. We're supposed to call to mind our sins. Our venial sins. Oh, I'm so mean to my mother this morning. I'm so impatient with kids. Oh my gosh, the thoughts I've had, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And then we say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And we are forgiven for our sins. But we have to call them to mind, right? We have to, like, ask for forgiveness and have that dialogue with the Father. Um, and the Eucharist forgives sins, venial sins. Um, and so, good works. Again, um, there's, so many, there's so many ways that um, the Lord works to transform us um, in our life, and the sacrament of, of reconciliation really reflects that um, beautifully. Yes, thank you. That's correct. Did everybody hear what he said? So he said, the, um, I want to understand that what you're saying. You're saying that missing Mass on Sunday is a mortal sin. You should not receive the Eucharist if you've committed a mortal sin. So you must go to confession um, before you would return to the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, yep, that's it. But there may be a reason why you missed Mass that would actually not make it a deadly sin. Um, this is a lousy excuse anymore, especially for somebody who goes to St. Michael's, but when I was a nurse, oftentimes I worked weekends, and I worked 12-hour shifts. Um, so I worked 7A to 7P, and then 7A to 7B. All the mass times are taken up during those times. There, there just isn't a time to go to mass. Um, and I never worked at the Catholic hospital, except in, when I was in Steubenville. And so, you know, that's a pretty good reason. I say it's, it's, it's not a great reason now for me because I, I don't work those 12-hour shifts and I work at a church, so it's easier for me to do. Um, but some people really, that's their reality. And so I have to take care of my bills and my house and those kinds of things, so that's a decent excuse. Um, other questions about what I've said? That's good. Yeah, one, one little clarification there, though, even though you can't receive Eucharist, you should still continue to go to Mass. You don't want to compound that more sin by continuing not to go, just because sure. you can't take communion, right? What you really should do is go to confession. Of course. Okay. <laughs> so you can be restored. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah, and if you can't get, get to confession, you can go to Mass and not receive Eucharist. But what you really, it's, there's, you can make an appointment with a priest who's done confession. Our priests are always available to hear confession. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> There's one here right now. <laughs> Anybody need to go to the car? <laughs> Joking. How are you? Causing trouble? No, not again. Well, don't get rained on today. Uh, you visited me 
good to see all of you again. Y'all be there. Not that I've been told. No, I'm just walking by and saying hello. All right. Bye-bye. So Brett has a really good question here. Bye. Good night, Father Leon. Um, that he was visiting his non-Catholic family with his Catholic wife and really stretched for time. And it was just a real difficulty. And actually, maybe even a lack of charity to push the fact that you would have to go mass. Um, and so sometimes that's reasonable. I would still go to confession about that. And I would just and I would check it out with the priest. And that's the other wonderful thing about confession. It's kind of like spiritual direction. And the priest would probably say, because I'm feeling with you as a human person, like that was kind of an act of charity because what your family feels is kind of like, well, this time is with us, right? Like they're not Catholic. They don't believe with you. And so sometimes you do as the Romans do, right? And that's an act of charity. Um, but I think most times when you're visiting family, even if they are not Catholic, um, it's a great time to be witness, to be a witness, you know, and to say, you know what, this is really important to us, and in fact, we'd love you to join us, you know, for Mass, because it's so beautiful, and we'd love to share that. Um, yeah, Phil. I think another good example would be being sick. Being sick, absolutely. If you're sick, please do not get out of bed and go to, go to Mass, and then drink a cup. And <laughs> 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 uh, blue season, we always usually ask people, if you have any inkling that you're not feeling well, please don't partake of the cup. Um, so yeah, those are great questions. Anything, any other comments? Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, my uh, in-laws, they, uh, they weren't in church at all. But going back to what you were saying, uh, I would think about it once. If they had something to okay, they, they, they just learned that they're going to plan something and it's going to be in church. So. Right, and I think that's a beautiful witness. I think it is. So Nancy said, you know, her in-laws were not Christian, and so, she, they, she just kind of brought them through that whole idea that this is just kind of what I do. This is what I do now that I'm, you know, Christian and committed to to this. And this is what the church teaches. Yes, please. I have a question. So if you know you're not going to be able to make a Sunday Mass, but you are able to make another day Saturday or whatnot, choosing the Eucharist, is that, like, is that okay? It can't be substituted that way. And again, I think, again, the rationale for why you can't make that Sunday Mass. Is it really that you can't make the Sunday Mass or you do not want to get up for the 7.30 a.m. Mass or you don't want to make it to the 5 p.m. Mass? I mean, is it really impossible for you? I mean, I guess my point earlier when I said this really isn't a great excuse, we have so many Masses. You know what I mean? We have so many Masses. We have a Sunday night Mass, we have a Saturday night Mass, we have a 7.30 a.m. Mass. And so it's really important for us to go to Sunday Mass. It's different than the Masses during the week. Masses during the week are abbreviated. The masses during the week, we don't profess our faith. We don't pray the glory. We don't have music. We're not in full worship mode. We don't have all the readings. And so it's different. Um, I, I go to daily mass, so I, I love daily mass, but it's different. I remember my brother, I think I've talked to you about my brother before, who thinks he's a Jew. I think he thinks he's a, he's a messianic Jew. That's what he is. But he said, well, you know, we're really, not, we're really supposed to go to Mass. It's the Sabbath. We have to go Saturday. So we discovered Saturday Vigil Mass, right? So I haven't told him yet, Mark, you're really going Sunday because it's after sundown. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, he's happy. He's going on Saturday. That's fine. 
Yeah, man. Can we determine, or are we able to discern ourselves if like a grave sin is mortal or if it's just venial, or should we assume it's mortal? Because I know like sometimes, like, I think the habit makes something venial, even if it's grave, or like there are various things other than, even if you know that it's grave, it can still be venial. So like, are we able yeah. to determine that? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the time we have a good sense that this is pretty serious. And I think if we're contemplating that, it's time to kind of talk to somebody about it. And I mean a priest, that'll mean just a friend. I mean, confession is good. Like, I mean, it is a good thing. So if we're struggling with something, we should go to be healed. Right? And maybe we'll sit down with the priest and he'll say, that's okay. Try not to do that, but, you know, let's talk about how maybe you could grow stronger in that vice. Um, you know, those kinds of things, but like better to go, right, and um, figure it out. The church asks, so I'm getting get ahead of my, my presentation, but that's okay. The church asks that you go to confession at least once a year, at least once a year. But that's like the minimum. Like, we're not about minimums here, right? We're about abundance. And so that's why we have actually two penitential seasons in the church, Advent and Lent. And we always have a penance service during that time in which we have a 25 priests come from all over the diocese, and all the, all the churches do that. They all, our priests go to their churches, and their church priests go to, come to our church. We have a huge penance celebration, so everybody has an opportunity to go to confession. And if you're encouraged, even if you're not in mortal sin, to go to confession, right? Because it helps us to grow in holiness, to talk about where we're struggling and where we're challenged in the Christian life. And so we have someone that sits before us who's actually in the person of Christ, who's been given the authority and the power to forgive sins, who's actually going to give us some instruction on how we might do better, and then give us a penance as to how we might improve. And so, um, so really, I try to go once a month to confession. It's kind of like my, that's my, I used to try to do four Saturdays and that just doesn't work anymore all the time, but just once a month. So I just know, okay, I haven't been this month, I need to go. Um, and I really don't struggle finding things to confess. I wish I could say I did, you know, but I'm always falling short in, you know, my temper, my patience, or my, um, you know, just so many, my, my lack of charity. My frustration, just things, you know. Um, hopefully, it's not serious, mortal. Um, but I don't want to get there, right? And so we're on a journey to holiness, and this is kind of a great way to achieve that in our lives to get better. Um, I think one of the questions that I hear oftentimes is this idea of, you know, how do we know that Jesus really calls us? to confess our sins to a priest. And I think that there's a couple of scripture verses which the church really believes has instituted the sacrament of confession. And I think the most clear one is, is in John chapter 20, when on the night that Christ rose from the dead, that he has conquered sin and death, and we, are, we, are, we now have access to the Father, he actually, you know, comes into the upper room. He goes through the door, right? And he, he, he enters into the upper room, and the apostles are scared out of their mind because he's, like, walked through the door. 
and he says to them, peace be with you. And then he says to them, after he breathes on them, and this is just the 11, it's not all of his followers, it's just the 11, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. And so Jesus basically breathes his spirit into his apostles and gives them both the power and the authority to forgive sins. Now, he gives them his spirit, though. So it's not the man, the priest, that's forgiving the sins. It's the spirit of God that is breathed into the man through his ordination. This is why we believe that the priest is in persona Christi, is in the person of Christ. And so the priest is an instrument of God's grace and allows for the forgiveness of sin that would keep us apart from the Lord if it wasn't actually present to us. And so this is really the institution of the sacrament um, and the institution of holy orders. And I think we heard that from John last time as well. There's other scripture verses which reflect this power um, of binding and loosing. This is in Matthew 18, 18, and on one of your slides that I've given you, there's, there's a bunch of different um, verses. But this is Matthew 18, 18, um, when Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, he's addressing the apostles, and he's telling them, you know, you're called to do what I have been doing. You know, driving out demons, healing the sick, forgiving sins, continuing um, the healing power um, that I have, have brought to the earth through my passion, death, and resurrection. Questions about that? Yes, Ms. James, 
um, in which we're called to confess our sins to one another. Um, but the, and Father Mike Schmitz, I'm gonna, I have a little video on Father Mike Schmitz. He kind of talks about this. He says that the instruction is, is actually um, one that the presbyters um, are called to again um, carry out with the people. So it, it is kind of a, a priest penitent situation. Um, but the actual way that we do confession has changed from what was from the very beginning. And that's important. Um, in the very young church, people who committed mortal sin, there was a lot of controversy. Should we actually let them come back in if they've already been baptized and they committed mortal sin? And so in the early church, these people that committed adultery, murder, or idolatry were excommunicated, like they were separated from the church, and they had to do public penance. Um, like stand on a corner with a sign on, I committed adultery, or, you know, and then not be allowed to worship um, with the community. And, and it was for months, and then maybe years, and then they would be allowed back into the community and faithful. And so it was really, I mean, we think confession's hard today. <laughs> it's a piece of cake. Um, compared to what happened. And then it wasn't until the 800s that the Irish monks brought this practice of private confession um, to North America. And then it just caught on and became um, really the way that we practice um, confession today. So my understanding is that purgatory will cleanse us of like venial sin. It'll also cleanse us of like the consequences of our sin. If we were to die with mortal sin, no. Mortal sin separates us from God, and so that's why it's so important for us to be working on our spiritual life. A mortal sin means that we have lost the grace of God, not because he's taken it away from us, but because we've refused it or we've turned away from it. And so if we are not a friend of God at the moment of our death, if we are in mortal sin, um, the consequence is death. And so, um, you know, I think we also do think, and I, I think anybody would say, but we know that God is like the hound dog of heaven, and he's like, wants all of us with him. And so what happens at the moment of our death? Do we get that moment in which we're invited to say I'm sorry in that moment? Does God offer us an opportunity to repent of our sins in that moment? I'd like to think that he does. But do you really want to take that chance? I mean, and I think the other thing is, is that would we recognize his call if we didn't know him before that moment? And that's just another thing that, you know, heaven is going to be a place of love and forgiveness and mercy. And if we're not living in that a little bit, are we even going to want to be there? You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, that's why this life is really kind of a preparation um, for a life of holiness and grace. And so mortal sin is a problem, right, that separates us from the Lord. How he works that out with us, you know, is, is, is again a mystery. But he's given us the ordinary way. And so it's a grace that you know the ordinary way. 
Um, and so we continue to work on that. If we're, if we're seriously seeking the Lord, you know, he's going to make that possible. And you're seriously seeking the Lord. Um, so let him transform you, you know. Other questions? Good questions. Yes? Great question. Yeah, so, so how do you choose your confessor? Well, most people want to go to somebody they don't know. Um, and so, because they're embarrassed, and, and I get it, you know, that's absolutely true. There's been times in my life where I've had a confessor, where I've always gone to the same person. Um, and then there's been times like, now I just kind of go to who's ever available. Um, and so, but it's beautiful to have somebody that really knows you, because they really do help you. Um, you know, to kind of, they, they can get right to it. It's kind of like the doctor that knows your history and knows your family and knows, you know, so he's not going to miss that you've got a history of breast cancer in your family and, you know, this lump may not be as benign as it looks. You know, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So, so it's kind of just, you know, I think having a spiritual director, that's one of the premises of having a spiritual director is that they're your confessor too, which is lovely. Again, it's, it's really what you're comfortable with. Okay, so, so I think I've, I've already addressed this a little bit. It's really what we're talking about here is an interior conversion. Just, just that you're, you're thinking about, you know, the, the sacrament of confession that you want to move forth um, in a life of holiness um, really signifies a turning towards God. And that you want to grow in holiness and virtue. And that's really what the Lord is looking for. If we believe that Jesus is God, and that he has established a church, and he has given us kind of these ways of living, then it should just be kind of a natural consequence that we would reorient our lives to. And to, to reorient our lives to Christ is to radically reorient our lives, that he is the center of it, and that everything really changes as a, as a result of that. And I will tell you, I think most of the world is really not very comfortable with that. And it's oftentimes a reason why people um, don't embrace the Christian life, at least seriously. Now, Pope Benedict has said that the greatest crisis of our time is that people claim Christianity, but they don't live. And so we've got over 90% of a Christian culture that is not very Christian, right? And so, you know, what's, what does it mean um, to do that? There are different forms of penance. That is, the different forms of radically reorient our lives to the Lord. The, the normal, ordinary way um, are these three ways that are talked about in scriptures, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. Um, Jesus himself said there's nothing more powerful than fasting. Remember when his disciples could not expel the demon? And they said, Lord, why couldn't we you know, expel this demon from this guy? He said, this one will only come out with prayer and fasting. So fasting is a powerful spiritual tool. It empties us of, of, our, of the things of the world and fills us or allows an openness. 
for the grace and the life of Christ and gives us power. Um, Almsgiving is doing good, um, works of charity, and of course, prayer is a dialogue with the Father. And I, again, I, I, you know, I'm not sure I've even said this to you all. I say to my marriage prep couples all the time, which maybe half of you are my marriage prep couples, um, is that, you know, are you spending some time in prayer every day? Are you spending some quiet time in dialogue with the Father? In just a conversation with the Lord? Thank you, Lord. I need help in this, Lord. Help me, help me to see your will for my life, Lord. Um, there's just nothing more powerful um, than, than prayer. And so my, my hope is that you're already in that mode, um, and so very, very important. Second thing I have here is gestures of reconciliation, concern for the poor, good works. All of these things are forms of penance, of doing good, of repairing um, the things that maybe we've fallen short of. Um, in our life. I've mentioned how Eucharist itself forgives our sins. Um, it is a sacrament of healing in that sense, as long as it's a venial sin. Penance does the same thing. Um, reading sacred scripture, it is a way again of um, taking in the words of the Father. It's a way in which he can instruct us in how to live our lives. It's a perfect way to really begin your prayer life, just to read the word of God and then meditate on it. What are you trying to say to me in this, in this paragraph of sacred scripture? Give you a great opportunity in just the readings we have every week for, for the gospel, for BOW. <clears throat> we do have, the church does have, um, the call to prayer is mass. So mass is a call to prayer. It's the highest form of prayer for a Catholic. Um, but also the call that the church makes in different opportunities to fast. Catholics, what are our days of fasting? That's it. I mean, the church only asks us to fast twice, seriously. Um, and then on Fridays in, in Lent, we're asked to abstain from meat. Then we have this amazing fish fry that really isn't fasting. So, um, so, so it's kind of skirting the, the issue. But, but there's ways that we can um, kind of do that. This is another great um, scripture verse that I think is, does really have a a connection here to the sacrament of, of reconciliation and penance. Um, there, there's, there's a dimension in the gospel in which Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. And, and then, then God basically, Jesus says to him, you know, what, the, what giving you this keys to the kingdom means? It means that now you're going to be able to bind and loose, right? Everything that you, you know, bind here on earth will be bound in heaven and everything, you know, that you you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what you say goes, and he's saying this to the disciples. But he's giving Peter the keys to the kingdom. And this kind of is the basis for the authority of the church that Christ is giving to Peter as the head chief apostle. Because see, in the Old Testament, and these are Jews, the apostles are Jews, so they understand this language. In the Old Testament, there was a hierarchical structure. And the king had these people that he gave authority to. And the most important person in the kingdom was the prime minister, and the prime minister is the one who received the keys of the kingdom. And so he was given the authority of the king. And that's really what Jesus is doing with Peter. He's giving him the keys of the kingdom, that whatever you loose here on earth will be loosed in heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. 
And so again, um, there's this authority um, that is given. So let's just talk about the sacrament itself. What happens in the, in the sacrament itself? There's, there's two really important elements in the, the sacrament itself. It's, it's what you do as a person, and then it's what the Holy Spirit does um, to us. And so there's, there's three main dimensions that we're called to kind of bring to the sacrament. Um, and one is contrition. And what's contrition? Anybody? What? Sorrow, right? Yeah. Feeling bad, right? I, I, I feel contrite. I feel bad about this. Um, and so there's two types of contrition. I mentioned one when I talked about the prodigal son, and that's imperfect contrition. And that means that I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm feeling real bad. I'm feeling heavy about this. I want peace. Um, I've lost something. And that's okay. Imperfect contrition is okay. The Lord will accept it. It's calling you back to him. The other type of contrition is perfect contrition, and that is that you're sorry because of your love for God. And so it's, it's pure contrition. Very few of us have that. If you do have perfect contrition, it's actually the one contrition that will actually work without confession in terms of washing away deadly sin. Um, and so most of us bring to the sacrament of confession a mixture. We certainly love God, but we also are sorry we got caught. We've lost something, and so we, we, want, to, we want to make this right. So contrition is important. And the priest is looking for that in confession, right? And usually most of the time when you go to confession, your head is down, your eyes fill up with tears, you're a little bit embarrassed, um, and the priest knows that. Like, it's very obvious um, that you're contrite. Second thing is confession. You actually confess your sins, and you list your sins. You talk about your sins. I usually have a conversation with the priest. I'll say things like, this is really my, my challenge, my obstacle to loving well is this. And I'll, you know, talk about it. Maybe I'll tell the, the issue that I actually had, you know, that, that week or that month. So confession of your sins. And then lastly, satisfaction. And that is cleaning up the broken glass. And the way that you clean up the broken glass is through a penance that the priest will give you. And he'll give you a penance. Usually that involves a prayer, some type of prayer of the church, and then secondarily, a good work. Um, you know, if you've struggled with a family member, maybe do something nice for that family member. Maybe reach out to that family member. Um, you know, maybe do something kind anonymously um, to someone. Um, and so both of those things um, are part of that. And then the action of God through the Holy Spirit is the forgiveness of sin, right? The healing of the sinner. Reconciliation with, the, with God and with the church. And those are things that, that happen. Um, so both of these are the elements of the sacrament. We bring one in our freedom, and the action of the Holy Spirit does the rest. Let's look a little bit at your, um, your short guide um, for confession. really good. I usually, there's a really pretty one that we usually have, but they didn't have it at the store at Veritas this weekend. So I got this one, but I really like it. So there's an examination of conscience, and this is a, a great examination of conscience. It kind of goes through questions, all these kinds of things, which address each of the Ten Commandments. 
And so it's a great way to kind of look at where might I have fallen short. Um, do I take the name of God in vain? Did I curse? Do I take a false oath? Did I miss fast on Sundays or holy days of obligations? Did I keep fast and abstinence on the prescribed days? Did I disobey my parents, lawful superiors, and important men? It's just a really basic review of conscience. Um, there's some deep stuff in here um, as well. And then it kind of gives you some suggestions about how you should really kind of prepare yourself for confession. Before confession, be truly sorry for your sins. The essential act of penance on the part of the penitent is contrition. Here we go with contrition. So it talks about the different types of, of contrition, a resolution to avoid committing these sins in the future. I always remember um, one of our presenters would always say, you know, somebody's confessing that, you know, they're struggling with an adulterous relationship, but then they tell me to hurry up with my, um, with my penance so that we can go meet her at 4 o'clock, then this is going to be a problem, right? And so there has to be contrition, there has to be a resolution to amend my behavior um, and to change my ways. After um, your, you actually give your sins, then the priest will give you some, again, some counsel. Um, will ask you to do your act of contrition, and there's an act of contrition here um, that is written. And then, um, and then you get your actual absol absolution of sin. And this is the most one of the most beautiful prayers of the church. If you look on the back, the way back where it says right of reconciliation, it actually gives you the steps for receiving the sacrament. But this is the this is the, the prayer of absolution. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of His Son, has reconciled the world to Himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God give you pardon and peace, and I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then, um, usually he'll say, peace be with you, as Christ did on the night he instituted the sacrament. Um, and you'll leave the confessional, and you'll go into the church, and you should do your prayer penance in the church before you leave. There may be part of your penance that you can't do before you leave the church, but you should do that. Um, and then, you know, spend some time in prayer if you can. Um, but the actual um, right of confession is here as well. You would go into the you would go into the confessional and say, you know, forgive me, Father. I have sinned. It has been a month, two months. It's my first confession, uh, whatever that might be. And then the priest will give you a lesson, and many times they'll say, may you do a wonderful confession. And then you'll say your sins. And then he'll give you his counsel. He'll give you your penance. He'll ask you for your act of contrition. And then he will absolve you of your sins. The act of contrition is also on the wall of the confessional, um, in case you forget your act of contrition. Most of us kind of know one from our second grade um, first confession. Uh, that we've done since then. Um, questions about the celebration of the sacrament? Okay. What's like too scrupulous for going? Mm -hmm. I've read it like once a week. Would you say that's accurate? Like if you go more than once a week, then you're like bordering like being scrupulous? 
You know, again, I think um, I think quantity is kind of um, it's not really quantity. It's it's kind of you know where where do I start to get a little uncomfortable? Yeah. Kind of in my life, um, and so if, if once a week is kind of more the goal versus when I'm uncomfortable with maybe my level of spirituality, maybe that is the better guide. Um, so, you know, again, I think you're going to the same priest can help you with that. Because I think a lot of times priests will, will help you with that. They'll say, you know, you've been here three times this week. And impatience does not call for three times a week confession. Try to be patient. <laughs> right? So, um, so if you think you struggle with that, I'd go to the same priest. Good question. Yes. Do they have like times posted on like when confession? Yeah. Yeah. So we have confession twice a week here at St. Michael's Saturday mornings from nine to ten, um, and then also on Tuesday night from six to seven. And you can also always make an appointment with the priest, um, and so they're happy to do that. And then we've got so many churches around here, and everybody has a different schedule. Like St. Anne's always has it before their new mass. Um, and then I don't know what St. Cyril's are, but we've got so many churches around here. So. There's masstimes.org, and they have a uh, Great. Holy Rosary that there's every day. Oh, really? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, a lot of the Cathedral does it before mass, too, um, which is good. Yes, please. Absolutely. Another priest. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's a beautiful story about Pope John Paul II, um, where a priest um, who had left the priesthood um, kind of was just kind of, I forget what happened in the priest's life, but um, he, he encountered John Paul II and met him personally, kind of shared his story with him. And John Paul II, you know, said, you know, we need to restore you. Like, you, you're, you're, you're forever a priest. Like, not your priest, you're always a priest. You can be laicized as a priest, but you're always locked with the priesthood, and you have to be given permission to, to live out your faculties by a bishop. Um, but as soon as the priest was restored to his faculties by the Pope, he said, now will you hear my confession? And so a priest, they're all priests. And so, um, so yeah. John Paul II said he went once a week to confession. That was always kind of a known fact about Pope John Paul II. So there's, here's the spiritual effects of the sacrament. Again, reconciliation with God, restoration of that grace that we have lost, reconciliation with the church, remission of eternal punishment incurred by mortal sins, peace and serenity. Boy, this is the best gift of the sacrament of confession. Um, there is like a, a weight that's like lifted from you uh, when you walk out of the doors of confession. Um, and an increase in spiritual strength to avoid future sin. That's part of the act of contrition, to avoid the near occasion of sin, to help me to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. That's what the grace of the sacrament will provide you with. Yes, Brad. So this might be a silly question, but what if, uh, like, a pope did a, a very bad thing, and, like, like what, what would happen? Like, does he get, like, like, if the president is a man, he gets impeached, is that a similar process? 
or can he be forgiven? Like, let's say he has sex. Like, or, you know, like, something like that. Can he be forgiven and maintain his power? Absolutely. I mean, forgiveness is, um, so forgiveness is different from consequences, and that's really important. Um, now, we've had some really bad popes, you know, in the history of the church that have done a lot of really bad things. Um, I'm not sure if those popes asked for forgiveness. I'm not sure if they went to confession about it. Um, but there is a difference between forgiveness and consequences, so I think that's really important. Um, anyone can be forgiven. There is no unforgivable sin. If I, if I can't say anything, it's so important for you to know that. Like, there's no unforgivable sin. And so, when we ask for forgiveness, it is forgiven. Um, so, you know, I guess it, it relates to the knowledge of that sin. Is that person really changed their life and turned towards sin? Or again, you know, they're, it's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many things that go into that. It just, like, this topic, like, brings up the most, like, questions for me. Because, like, for instance, sure. um, like, people that, that, that are in love with the same sex, mm -hmm. you know, you say it's not... It's unforgivable, and yet they, they can't consider like they can't be like you want like you can you can't pray that away. At least that's my judgment. It's not their yeah. choice to, to be that way. Yeah. And so it's like you go to get like how do you I don't know. It's like a weird. No, that's a that's a great question, and we'll talk more about that in moral life. But again, there's there's a difference because um, you know I always talk about same sex attraction is a, is a difficult difficult. Um, Inclination, right? There's, and it's um, it's certainly not something maybe someone's chosen or, and we, we, there's lots of different theories about whether or not this is something that someone's born with or something that happens as a result of environment. Um, but regardless of our inclinations, because all of us have disordered desires, regardless of those, we still have the capacity to choose. And um, persons with same-sex attraction and somebody like me who is single have the same call to chastity. Like, I have desires, but I'm a single woman who's not in a marital relationship, and so my desires are real, good, not necessarily, you know, bad or disordered, but there's, there's a particular call for me to live those out that corresponds with the meaning of the sexual gift. The sexual gift has a meaning, and we talked about this ad nauseum, right, in theology of marriage. The sexual gift has a meaning, and the meaning of the sexual gift is union with the couple, but it's also ordered to something bigger than just that union, and that something bigger is the procreation of new life. And same-sex attraction can never actually have that come to be. And so, so the meaning of sex is, is, is in fact, um, not, no longer an act of love because its meaning has been obscured. And so that's a difficult truth. That's a difficult truth. Um, but it's one that I'm called to receive as a single woman and, um, and persons with same-sex attractions are called to that as well. And so we're all called to be chaste. Those couples that are married are called to be chaste. Right? You're called to chastity, which means that you never use the person that you're married to as an object for the satisfaction of your desire. 
that that person is an end in and of themselves. They're not a means to my sexual satisfaction. They're an end. They're made for God. And so my call as another human person is to love that person, which means I have to help them to become holy. And so I'm actually commanded to love someone I'm attracted to, which may mean that I have to sacrifice my, my desires for their holiness. That happens in marriage. You know? I'll never forget a professor I had in one of my graduate programs that talked about, you know, I, I couldn't wait to get married. You know, they were real good Catholic kids and they would wait until they got married. He said, I thought that I'd be entered into the candy store, that I could take advantage of whatever I wanted once I was inside. He said, boy, did I learn real quick. That's not how it goes, you know? And actually, what, what that really could communicate, right, is a lack of respect, a lack of truly loving the other as a gift, a recognition of what sex, again, really means that sex needs to be responsible. Love. Love needs to be responsible for the other. When I love someone, I'm responsible for them. What does that mean? I'm responsible for their good. And the highest good of every human person is union with God. That's what we need. And that is not easy. It is not easy to live a Christian life. It's not easy. Um, but that's our call. It's our call to, to be whole, to become holy. And there's no greater love than loving someone in that way. Does anybody, any of my team members want to add to that? Or non-team members add to that? Like, to what? To anything that I've said. Oh, oh. <laughs> I mean that I've forgotten to, to say about love. I mean, we're going to talk about this in the moral life because I think it's so important. Um, but it really kind of transverses um, every aspect of the moral life. Because to love someone is to will their good. Not, it's, it's an act of the will. It's not about my feelings. Because my feelings reduce you to something that's generated in me. And so it's about me, and that's not what love is. Love is not merely a feeling. Thank you for asking these questions. They're so important. They're so, so important. Yes. Our last one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if I go to a wedding of a same-sex couple, is that committing That's a good question. Mm-hmm. The problem is this, um, is that you're actually, if you're, you know, you're, you're witnessing something that um, God has said doesn't really exist, because God established marriage. He said marriage is between a man and a woman. A man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife. The two shall become one, and then He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. So, so I guess my my question, my answer would be uh, maybe a couple of different things. I've heard a couple of different answers to this. Because um, I think charity is so important, right, in relationships. Because I used to be an HIV AIDS nurse, so like 98% of people that I took care of were men who had sex with men. Um, and so, um, so the important thing, I think, always is have you communicated honestly um, if you're a good friend with this person, your belief. 
and a recognition maybe that I don't believe that there is marriage between two men or two women. And so can you go to that? Can you still, can you, can you have a real friendship where you actually share this true feeling with each other? So I don't think it's necessarily a sin if you go to um, a civil union. I, I, guess, I guess my concern would be is what are we calling it and are we witnessing and causing scandal that people think that we're acknowledging that this is okay in a sense. But I mean, I, I also think it's really important that we communicate honestly with the people that we're in relationships with and maybe we can still be part of that. I don't know. I think that that's, that's controversial. Any, any thoughts from my team on that? Like, yeah, Amanda, what do you think? Um, I personally would have difficulty attending a same-sex marriage. Like, I've been invited to that, and I also have a friend who um, carries that cross and asks, has asked me, like, when I was doing RCIA, if I would attend. A wedding if she were to get married. Uh, but I am okay with like having dinner and being friends and loving my friend because like we're called to love everyone. Like similarly if I had a friend who was in a heterosexual relationship and I thought it was really unhealthy for them and I thought it was controlling for instance, I wouldn't attend the wedding. Even if it was a man and a woman. Because if I thought it was bad for a person, or like not good for the person, I wouldn't attend it, regardless of the reason why. Um, but I would still try to be in relationship with the person and love the person. Sure. Other thoughts? Yeah, thank you. Uh, a couple months ago, I had a, a Facebook post from a member of my family uh, that was celebrating the same sex union of a friend of hers. And it really upset me. Um, and then it was actually, and I think this is really God's grace working in our lives, it was just two or three days later that we had that RCIA team uh, night, uh, pizza night with the Dominican Yeah, yeah, he was crazy. And we talked at length about this issue that we're talking about right now. And one of the questions was, you know, I have a family member who lives out of town. I'm estranged from right now, but I got a call from a brother or sister. They're going to be in town for Thanksgiving holidays or something like this, and they wanted to get together for a dinner. And this other person would be again in the same sex relationship. And the question was, should I go? Is my very presence, you know, a, a lie about what my own beliefs are? And I thought that the answer about this to make priest was very appropriate uh, and similar to what you're saying, is that by all means go, be charitable, uh, but don't deny what your beliefs are and don't bring up even necessarily the, the topic. But if the topic does come up, be prepared to defend your beliefs. And I, I thought yeah, that I thought was, that was really balanced and loving. I thought it was a balanced approach. And in my own life, the, the godfather of our youngest, uh, uh, our oldest daughter, uh, is in a same-sex relationship. Uh, and, and this was a, you know, a religious person. 
And when he came out, you know, he was very uh, scared, you know, with, with coming out. And some of my own family said, well, that's it. I'm never going to talk to him again. And I wrote him back and said, you know, you're, you're my friend for, for life, and that's it. And, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that as it comes. And we're, we're still good friends. We, he lives in Denver. We, we had dinner sure. with him a year and a half ago when we were out there. Sure. Be charitable to each other. We, you know, we're all fault. You know, we all have our struggles, right? We all have our, mm -hmm. our limitations and our sins. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing is whether thinking about, you know, accusing, you know, what's my position on the other is what's my position on me. That's somebody that I can work with and affect with God's grace. Yeah. And I think it's being honest too. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, um, let's get to the second sacrament here. The anointing of the sick. I think this is, this is pretty uh, straightforward. Again, the anointing of the sick is, um, again, there's this healing power of Christ which continues um, in our life. And it really does address the problem of suffering. I think oftentimes suffering can cause people to either draw more closely to God or turn away from God. Because oftentimes people blame God um, for suffering. And I do think it's important for us to kind of make clear in our heads that sin allowed for illness and death to enter the world. It's really important for us to get that. But we don't necessarily say that somebody that is ill has committed a sin, and that's why they're ill, right? So there has to be a real strong understanding of that. Now, some people can drink too much and smoke too much and end up with lung cancer, right? Okay, so we all understand that. Or is totally promiscuous and ends up, you know, with some kind of horrible sexually transmitted disease or cancer or something like that. Um, but sin did cause illness and death to enter the world. That's why we have disease and illness and death, right? The wages of sin are death. Um, and yet, we would never say that somebody was with cancer and they have cancer because they have sinned, right? And so I just, but I do, but that's the reality, though, that sin has brought into the world. So there's, there's physical evil, um, and there is um, there's evil that we perpetrate in terms of our actions. But oftentimes the problem of suffering will, will draw us closer to the Lord, and I think sometimes the Lord allows for suffering so that we will cry out to the only one who can say and answer the question, why me? And when we cry out, we're actually crying out to the Lord. And that's oftentimes an entree that he takes to draw us near. So the Lord doesn't cause suffering, but he has allowed it sometimes in our lives. The gift of suffering, too, is um, also not just a gift for the person who suffers, but it's oftentimes a gift for the person that surrounds the one who suffers. Because it calls us to holiness. It calls us to charity. It calls us to patience and generosity and all those other things. This sacrament was instituted, um, we believe, in the book of James, when James calls out, is any, anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick man, 
and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. So the sacrament of the sick, its um, sign is oil, so the anointing of hands and forehead with oil. There's a laying on of hands. There's a prayer over the person. And the effects of the sacrament are a particular gift of the Holy Spirit, which can cause healing. Most of the time, it doesn't cause a physical healing, but will always provide a spiritual healing. And so there's a particular gift of the Holy Spirit, union with the passion of Christ. Oftentimes you'll hear maybe older Catholics say things like, offer it up. If you're feeling, if you're suffering or you're sick, offer it up. Offer it up for, you know, for somebody else. Um, why? Because that's what Christ did for us. And so oftentimes in our suffering, we can actually be in union with the suffering and the passion of Jesus Christ. Um, there's an ecclesial grace that's given, and so again, that, that means a grace that's given to the church through the suffering of the world, because we're called to be a community and a civilization of love. Suffering should call us out to serve others, um, to assist others, to visit the sick, to bring them communion, to offer um, works of charity and grace. And then lastly, um, Someone that's anointed, now somebody that's anointed can be anointed multiple times. If you're going for surgery in which you're undergoing anesthesia, you should be anointed because there's a possibility of death. If you are frail and elderly, you can be anointed because there's a possibility of death. Um, if you have some kind of an illness, you can be anointed. And so to take advantage of this sacrament, um, as somebody can receive it multiple times throughout their lifetime. There is no time where somebody can be refused the anointing of the sick. Oftentimes, if someone is in their final, on their final kind of leg of their journey, um, and a priest comes to visit them, usually he'll prepare to hear that person's confession if they're able to make a confession. He will anoint them, and then he will give them Holy Communion. And this Holy Communion is the last Holy Communion, and it's called Viatica. Which, is, which means food for the journey. And so it's the journey that they're going on towards the Lord. Um, they've received everything that they need to make that final journey. The anointing, the grace of the Holy Spirit, the Eucharist, um, to meet the Lord. Questions about anointing of the sick. Only a priest does the anointing of the sick. It's a sacrament of healing. Um, again, a beautiful sacrament. It can be done anywhere. It can be done in um, somebody's home. Um, it can be done in the hospital. It can be done in the church. Sometimes there's masses of healing. And after um, the homily, the priest will invite people to come up that need the sacrament to come up. It should not just be given to anyone. Like, everybody should not just get in line and receive it like you receive the Eucharist. That's oftentimes kind of a very inappropriate use of the sacrament. So the last rite is basically, it used to be called extreme unction. A sacrament used to be called extreme unction. The last rite was connected with that. So everybody that talked about anointing of the sick thought, oh my gosh, I can't get that or else I'm going to die. So they kind of connected the two, and so they changed the name of the sacrament to be the anointing of the sick instead of the last rites for extreme unction. So people would separate that idea that I can't, in fact, enjoy the healing power of God just because I'm not on the death, on deathbed. Okay. Mary? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. 
think so. I don't think so. I think it's only a priest. Um, do you know Alejandro? Can anyone else administer the sacrament of the sick? The anointing of the sick? Yeah, that's my understanding. Yes. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. And that's why it's so important to plan for that. And again, the priest is acting in persona Christi when he does it. So that's must be priest. And there are particular oils too that are utilized that are again blessed by the Cardinal on Holy Thursday, or actually we do it on Tuesday in this diocese. You'll see that procession of the oils during Holy Week when we we um, celebrate that week. I wanted to show you this quick video. We've got lots of time, so I want to show you this video. Kind of reviews. I knew. I always know confession is a hot topic, and so he kind of he may say some things that I didn't say, or certainly say them better than I said them. So that maybe um, you can. And I love Father Mike. He's not just cute. He's really smart. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Father Mike Schmitz, and this is A Sense of Presents. So I often have people, both Catholic and not Catholic, uh, friends and people I meet, um, who become friends, but that's how, whatever. People would ask me, um, they say, why do you have to confess your sins to a priest? Like, you Catholics, why do you have to confess your sins to a priest? If someone's Catholic, they say, hey, why do you Catholics have to confess their sins to a priest? Why not go right to God? That's a fantastic question, and that's what we're going to talk about today. When someone says, why confess your sins to a priest? Why not go right to God? I would respond, please, no, first thing, go right to God. Please go right to God. You know that as we're baptized Christians, the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit gives us like direct access to the Father. Even if you find yourself in serious sin, yes, go right to God and apologize. Like repent of your sins, confess your sins to God. That is, we do that, but we also recognize that we're called to go to the priest. Why? Because the role of the priest, the role of the priest, even in the Old Testament, was a role of intercessor or mediator. Now, Jesus Christ is the one great mediator between God and man, but that's a very, very specific um, uh, title that St. Paul was using that says that he's the one who ultimately makes it possible for us to have full access to the Father. But we mediate on behalf of other, each, each other often. For example, I have a Bible in my hand. I did not make this Bible, and God didn't give it to me directly. It was communicated to me. It was given to me by someone else. So someone else was the mediator, right? They gave me the scripture. And someone else taught me the word of God. And so those people were mediators in a similar way. Priests in the Old Testament were mediators between God and men. And in the New Testament, priests serve a similar role, but with even more power. Why? Because in the Old Testament, uh, priests would act as a symbolic mediator between God and man, right? They would intercede on behalf of the people to God. And they would, take, they would offer up sacrifices for sins, for the forgiveness of sins. But ultimately, they couldn't, those things couldn't take away sins. Jesus Christ himself can take away sins. He even said, your sins are forgiven, you know, go in peace. But it's, it's his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, that makes it possible for us to have our sins forgiven. But then something powerful happens in John chapter 20. Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears to the apostles in the upper room, and he breathes on them, John chapter 20, and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Those whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Those whose sins you hold down are held bound. He gives the apostles the ability to forgive sins. Now this is absolutely powerful. Why? Because not only does it demonstrate that Jesus is instituting a new priesthood, but it also reveals 
that Jesus desires that priesthood to extend his true and full forgiveness to all those who come in repentance. Because Jesus never gives a gift that he doesn't expect us to use, right? Here's the gift of forgiving sins. Go do that thing. Now, why do we have confession? Well, <laughs> because from the beginnings of the church, it began this, this um, a tendency or a, a practice of confessing your sins to the priest, to the presbyteroi, uh, confessing your sins to the priest, and allowing the priest to have a prayer of forgiveness. In fact, James chapter 5 talks about this. Says, Is there anyone sick among you? Let them send for the priest, and the priest pray over them. No anything with them of oil in the name of the Lord. If the person sick will recover, if they have any sins, those sins will be forgiven them. Now the next line says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. A lot of times, uh, non-Catholic Christians will say, well, yeah, Jesus says confess your sins to each other. Confess your sins to one another. So that could be just Christian confessing to Christian. Yeah, I'll give you that point. It could mean that, definitely. But let's look at all the words. What, it just, what was just described? It was just described as sin to the elders, the presbyterite, priests of the church. Let the priest pray over them, and if they have any sins, those sins will be forgiven them. Who did Jesus give the ability to forgive sins to? To the apostles. Okay, so we're talking about their descendants, or their, you know, people who came after them. Then, they have any sins will be forgiven them. Then it says, therefore. And the big Bible joke is, whenever the word therefore is there, you have to ask one question. What is it therefore? <laughs> it says, therefore, because your sins one of them. It just gets done talking about the priest forgiving sins, and then it says, therefore, confess your sins. That's really important. Because it's actual biblical link between confession and forgiveness. Quick clarification. Is, am I saying, like, well, priests have the power to forgive sins? Well, yes, they have the authority to forgive sins, but they don't themselves, and, like, I don't, as of myself, as, like, might, don't have the ability to forgive sins. But Jesus has desired to forgive sins through me. I remember hearing a, a, a conversation between a priest and a, and a Baptist pastor, and the Baptist pastor was challenging the priest on, like, how can you claim to forgive sins? Um, only God can forgive sins. And the priest said, well, of course, God is the one who forgives sins. But he asked the Baptist pastor, he said, but, you know, do you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And the pastor said, yeah, I have the gift of healing. So the Lord has healed, you healed, he said, you healed people. And he said, well, no, the, the Lord has used me to give his healing to people. Yeah, he's, he's used me as his, as his servant, as his, as his tool. And the priest said, exactly, that's what confession is. And the, to his credit, the Baptist pastor said, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Just like the Lord does want to mediate his forgiveness, or his, sorry, his healing, or his miracles, his wonders, his preaching, through the preaching of us Christians. He also desires to mediate his forgiveness through the ministry of the priests. Let's come back to the original question. Why can't I go right to God? Yeah, of course you can. But one of the things that Jesus gives is he gives us a gift. Apostles, you have the ability to forgive sins. Those who sins you forgive are forgiven. Those who sins you hold down are held down. My guess is he does not want us to not use his gift. But he wants us to use the gift. And he gives it to us for a reason. Not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to the community. That's one of the things that sin does. It divides us from God, it also divides us from the community. So we need to be received back into the community. Just like when Jesus heals the leper, he says, go show yourself to the priest and offer for your sacrifice, your cleansing, what Moses prescribed. That'll be enough for them. Why? Because the priests receive you back into the community after you've been outside the community. Here's what I find really interesting about confession. In no denomination, throughout the entire world, throughout the history of the world, was it ever claimed that you could baptize yourself. And no one, and no one does that. No one, no one baptizes themselves 
into Christ, someone baptizing themselves into the community, you always are receiving the community. Always someone else baptizes you. But when it comes to confession, everyone's like, no, 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 I go right to God. I don't have to, I don't have to go through someone else. Yet when it came to baptism, you went through someone else. Here's, I think, where you get really honest. I think here's where the, where the rubber hits the road. In baptism, it doesn't, I don't have to confess any sins. I don't have to say anything. So, yeah, go ahead. You give me that. But in confession, I have to admit my fault. I have to say things that maybe are embarrassing. It's a no, 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 no. In that case, I go right to God. I think it's time to be able to really a little bit more honest with ourselves and realize that Jesus, in the scripture, gives the priests the ability to forgive sins. I just might not like that because I don't want to have to confess my sins, right? And yet we know this. We know, we know. The confession is not a place for embarrassment. Confession is not a place for shame. Confession is not a place to, to get beaten up. I always say this, and I'll say it again. Confession is not a place of defeat. Confession is where you have been. I've been defeated by sin, but Jesus Christ gets to have victory in my life. Confession is a place of victory. Where you get to say, Lord God, this is where I've been. This is what I've done. Please have mercy on me. And you get to hear those amazing, amazing words. I absolve you of all of your sins. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, how powerful is that? You know, the Lord God, through that ministry of the priesthood that he gave us as his gift, has forgiven your sins and made you new. So, you need to go to confession. Please, I just invite you. Um, don't hold back. Go to God right now, but then go to confession as soon as you can. Because it takes both. For all the series that presents, my name is Father Mike. God bless. Also, be sure to like, subscribe, uh, comment, whatever, and go to confession. He talks, he talks faster than I do. <laughs> Any final questions before we wrap up for the night? Any final Here, questions? Yes, it's just a comment. I remember why it is that the priest is the only one who can anoint the sick because of the absolution element within it. Okay. That's it. Just came. <laughs> all right, we're all good. All right, why don't we um, stand and pray the Our Father together? Prayer for our safety home and our thankfulness to in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our sins, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. John Paul II, pray for us. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's safe going home, guys. Thanks so much. Oh, no.